I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. We are so excited to share our interview with the magnificent Miriam Lina. Miriam has been making her mark on the music world since 1976. She was the first drummer of the legendary band The Cramps before meeting her partner, Billy Miller. Together, her and Billy took their passion for music to the next level. First came their fanzine Kicks, then came Norton Records, which focuses on amazing rockabilly and garage reissues from the 50s to the 70s. And if that weren't enough, Miriam's love of literature then led to the formation of Kick Books, their publishing company. I really loved this conversation so much. Every time we chat with somebody at the end, I'm always like, that was my favorite interview ever. <laughs> and honestly, this was like the same thing. I was so energized after we had this conversation with Miriam. And I really think that people are going to learn a lot from this episode. And I think they're really going to enjoy it. I agree. Miriam talks with us about all this and Kickbook's latest masterpiece, Mind Over Matter, The Myths and Mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records, written by Michael Hurt and Billy Miller himself. Head over to NortonRecords.com to purchase your copy of the book. And while you're at it, pick up the rock and vinyl too. Enjoy the interview. Well, Miriam, you and I have something in common. I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario. No way. No way. I really? Did. Yes. Actually, a small town outside of Sudbury called Naughton. 
I know not, and mm-hmm. I, I know not, and it's kind of like Norton. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. But I, I left when I was quite young. I left uh, when I just turned eleven years old. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I have a lot of memories. Of course, all of those uh, early memories, and I missed Canada so much all through, you know, my uh, teen years and stuff like that. I missed my friends, and I just wish the, that I could have never left there to be perfectly honest now I've been gone for many decades but I'm still a Canadian at heart and and still a Canadian citizen believe it or not awesome well I think by the time I was 11 I did know that I did want to leave Sudbury sooner rather than later (laughs) I didn't you know I didn't know that any world existed outside of it you know and it and, um, you know, at that time in 1967, which is when we left, uh, you probably know Sudbury was a really different place. I went back for the first time in um, almost 50 years. Was it 50 years? Yeah. Uh, with, uh, with my brother, my older brother. He's nine years older than I. And uh, we, we came up there because um, some friends who were in a band called the Flesh Tones, New York band who are, are popular in Canada, they were doing a gig up there. And it was immediately pat after... Um, excuse me, it was immediately after Billy's passing and they thought that it would be a good idea to be with friends and go travel a little because I hadn't traveled uh, for quite some time. And so I went up there and I met my brother and we went to all the old spots, the old school, the old house, you know, <laughs> all of this stuff to try to, uh, to try to reconnect with it. And it was bittersweet, uh, but, but I knew that I was no longer a Siberian at that point, you know, and sort of my brother. You know? <laughs> so it was great to go back and uh, kind of look at the roots and uh, experience it. And a lot of beautiful things, uh, the lake, you know, we used to have a cabin by the lake. That was great. But, um, but in, in, in total, it was, it, it, you know, life takes you where it takes you. And when you're a child, you go where your family takes you. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of how Sudbury has really grown over the last few years into a really strong music and arts community. It's, yes. Indeed. I didn't feel much of that too much when I was in high school, but it's really come a long way. And now I can say I'm, I'm feeling proud of Sudbury these days. But yeah, why don't you yeah. tell us about after you left uh, your upbringing a little bit and where did your passion for music begin? Well, I was born in Sudbury to a family that were who were immigrants from Finland. And so my brother and sister were both born there, and so were my parents. So I grew up in a primarily Finnish community, spoke Finnish first and so on, and went to a Finnish church and so on. My neighbors were Ukrainian. They went through the exactly the same thing, except... Hi. So they were Ukrainian and, and they went through their whole thing, but we were friends, you know, and, and English was our common now, uh, language. So uh, it was a it was a unique kind of a thing. My father worked at Inco, of course, like uh, of course. what 90 percent of the population. <laughs> so, did but, my, uh, so did my grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how it was. And when we left, uh, it was in the middle of sixth grade and uh, it was a big deal to me uh, in Canada. You know, I'd gone through through my older brother and sister, especially uh, the British invasion and uh, radio was really, really big. CHUM 1050 Toronto and listening at night to CKLW from Detroit coming across the water and CKSO (laughs) in Sudbury and so on. Uh, You know, radio was really the thing more than TV. uh, I I think radio was the thing. And that was the connection. We tried to figure out what the words were. I remember on the playground uh, when the Beatles came out, they, uh, I remember we were we were pretending we were riding horses, saying, "And then while I'm away, I'll ride home every day." 
<laughs> we thought the lyrics were ride home. You know, it's like, wow, the Beatles ride horses. <laughs> but but um, but it was uh, it was a unique time. I mean, I was really, uh, you know, I was a Canadian kid. That's all I knew. I remember when uh, JFK was assassinated, when Kennedy was assassinated, and we were all sent home from school in Canada, Churchill Public School. That's where I went. And uh, they sent the little kids home first. And I, I believe I was in... Uh, kindergarten at that time and they sent us home and uh, my sister's uh, six years older than me uh, she said that they were watching the little kids go and everybody was really distraught you know this is a huge tragedy uh, and uh, I was overheard saying to my little friend amidst many sobs uh, they're going to come up here and kill the queen because <laughs> <laughs> we had the queen on the you know it was on always prominent you know right there yeah. by the blackboard you know the flag and the queen <laughs> and she was so beautiful and all of this like she came to Sudbury at that time I don't remember that but uh, but it was a big um, it was a big deal I was really anglified and with the British invasion my sister and brother cool mods you know at the time 65 64 65 they were the hipsters and I was the little kid you know just watching and listening to this great thing happen and and that was uh, the the point in January of '67 when we came, and things changed a lot. Um, American uh, life for a school kid was very different. It was much more mature and much more rowdy and crazy. And you know, not all this raising your hand and saying please and thank you in the very polite way that school was for um, young kids. Uh, in Canada it was very different. I, I I was threatened the day first day I came <laughs> to school. You know, they they're like, we don't look like you over here. You know, and I had the long pigtails and I and I went to school January with my red stretch pants and my white go-go boots. <laughs> you know, and I didn't know you couldn't wear pants to school. You know, at that time, you know, we could wear slacks because the snow was you know up to our necks. So. You didn't have to wear a skirt to school, but I learned that really fast. And it was it was pretty brutal that first year, and um, um, kind of sided with the what the, with uh, what eventually became a real rock and roll crowd, which is has always been kind of a little bit of an outsider type of a deal, especially when you're a teenager and growing up, you don't quite fit in. I was younger than kids in my class and so on, but I'm glad it happened the way that it did. Wow, yeah. So you moved to Cleveland. When did you first start? going out to shows and I know the dead boys are from there you knew Stiv I love them so much yeah great guys what brought you into that scene well actually we lived in a really small town about 50 miles away from Cleveland uh right on the lake so uh so 50 miles at a time when you're like you know you're in your early teens, a 12-year-old, and so on. I was in high school uh, between the ages of, of 12 and 16. During that time, I mean, going 50 miles was like going across country. It was very difficult. But again, radio played in really big time. And Cleveland radio at the time was early uh, FM radio, WNCR, and then it turned into WMMS, which is a huge station. Uh, and CKLW still with the AM uh, was coming in big time. I mean, that's such a huge station that we got it in Northern Ontario and all through Ohio, and it was really influential. But I didn't really start going into Cleveland until probably, I remember my first show that I went to was a was a uh, open festival because I was young enough to be able to go, and I went with my sister, 
And, uh, and that was really exciting. Cleveland seemed like a really big, big town at that time. Of course, now it doesn't seem so big, but at the time it was like, oh, like Paris, Rome, London, <laughs> Cleveland. <laughs> but at any rate, one thing that did happen is my brother belonged to a fraternity and the fraternity brought in acts into this small town, Ashtabula, Ohio. Jack Kerouac wrote about it. There's, it's been mentioned in a couple of places as being like a really small town that people passed through and it was really scenic at one time. Kind of a resort town where people from the uh, central states would come there and they'd be right on Lake Erie. And Lake Erie at one point in time was not so polluted as it was when we, we were there. But in the early days, it was a very scenic, beautiful kind of a little town. But at any rate, my brother's fraternity brought in, uh, at one point when I was still in high school, probably 15, he brought in the Amboy Dukes, you know, Journey to the Center of the Mine, hey, this Detroit band, you know, he brought them in with a fraternity flag behind the stage and all this stuff. And uh, I, he had he'd asked me to help set up chairs there, you know, as though the chairs would last very long with the rock and roll shop. <laughs> so folding chairs and I'm like setting them up. But that was like, that was a mind blower for me. I mean, seeing them in, in a gym to see the Amboy Dukes, uh, Ted Nugent and the guys, you know, like on stage, you know, it was, it was so loud and so amazing that seeing that in person was really I, you know, I've, I've, thought about, I've thought about this many times, that what was the show that really did it? You know, and I like to think it was the Stooges, you know, it's like, or Slade or Bowie or some, one of the big acts that, that ended up coming to uh, Cleveland. But it was actually, I, I, I really think it was the Amboy Dukes and Ashtabula who just like completely blew the roof off of the place, scared everybody to death and, and really kind of amazed me and my sister who were there. And of course, my brother was, you know, the muscle <laughs> moving the amps around. And I thought, wow, my brother's like, he's a rock and roll. <laughs> uh, I love that. It's always just such a magical experience when you first enter that world and, you know, find your place in it and yeah. realize like, I found my people. Yeah. That's so cool. You got to experience that with your brother and your sister as well. My brother right. was in a band early on and really that got, that got me interested for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so yeah. you started going to these shows. At what point did you start going into New York and getting into that scene? Oh, I just found a photo of that first uh, trip to New York. Uh, what happened was I started at Kent State in 71, and, uh, and I graduated. Uh, this I mean, sounds so long ago. I can't believe it. It's like another century. Oh, my God. Did I say that? Ah! But uh, in 73, I was 17, and my sister and I went to England. My sister just turned up at home. She was already, uh, she was graduating from college. I was a year out of high school and had started college. And she said, uh, we're going to England. And my mother was like, you're not taking Miriam anywhere. <laughs> She's like, well, I got two tickets. They're one-way tickets. We're going. And, uh, you know, and my mother acquiesced her and so on. We just went. We went penniless. Uh, we went to England in uh, June of 73 and just spent uh, several months crisscrossing the country, went into Ireland and Scotland and so on, hitchhiking uh. with like no money and uh, wanting to see the rock and roll that was going on at that time. And as you know, in many of those years, but 73 was a really spectacular year. We had already been hanging out with a lot of groups, just having fun and, and going to the shows and getting our minds blown by the fact that there was another alternate universe out there that wasn't quite so boring and you didn't have to sit around for three weeks waiting for something exciting to happen, you know? So, so England was a really major turning point for me. And when I came back, I ended up 
finishing school, finishing, uh, graduated from Kent State. But before that is when I really became heavy duty friends with people in Cleveland because Kent, Ohio and Cleveland, Ohio, again, are not that far apart. And it wasn't a big deal to be able to go to shows. And I had discovered a group in Cleveland called Rocket from the Tombs and became close friends with their leader, two leaders, actually, uh, Peter Lofner and Crocus Behemoth. And we became close friends. They would come individually to come visit me in Kent and, and I would go to the shows and see them. I thought they were absolutely great. They became Perubu. And, uh, and at that same time, I became friends with uh, Sig Baders, who at the time uh, was groupless, uh, then was in a group called Frankenstein and, and then the Dead Boys. And uh, you probably saw on, on my blog that uh, on my uh, Kicksville 66 blog that Steve and I were really, really close friends. I mean, he gave me my first job when I was out of Kent, really desperate for money. I made phone calls with him to try to collect money for a fireman's fund. <laughs> I was unsuccessful. He could sell anything to anybody. <laughs> I just, just pick up the phone and say, how are you? And they were like, how much you want? <laughs> it was very persuasive. But, uh, but at any rate, it's coming up now, an anniversary, because November 1st was the first date that the Cramps played, and that was with the Dead Boys. And it was um, the Dead Boys' first appearance in New York, and uh, there's a letter from Steve on, on my uh, website where he said, hey, guess who we're playing with? you. It's like, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> and we had never played and, and the, the group wasn't even listed as the cramps. It was listed as like opening act or something like, or, or uh, something ridiculous like that. But, uh, but that was, uh, you know, that was, again, that was a really early moment. The cramps thing happened on a visit that my sister and I made to New York in 74 or 75. And we ran into Lux and Ivy, who I didn't know, but vaguely recognized. They recognized us from Cleveland. And uh, we were in New York. We were at a, a hamburger restaurant. And uh, they came over and said, hey, aren't you girls from Ohio? So, yeah. I was like, well, we are too. We're moving to New York. So, great. And they were moving from Akron, which is even closer to Kent. It's really like the sister city almost. And uh, so they said, look, when when we come, uh, how about if we stop by? Yeah, okay, fine. Not thinking that that would ever happen, but they did. They turned up at my door one day and they had plans for a group and uh, they started telling me about this thing and ended up getting asked to join a, a group. I had never played drums. I uh, never had any aspirations ever to actually be active in music. You know, I, I always thought that I was, uh, you know, going to somehow end up doing something on the writer end of things because I was crazy about books and crazy about uh, reading magazines and uh, books and doing research. I was kind of a, a goofball in that regard, but I never thought I would play in a group. And, uh, and that's, really when it happened. I ended up be, being in the cramps for uh, a full year. And, uh, and then after that, the whole <laughs> generational thing of, okay, go to another band and then another band and then stay for a long time. And then life happened. And uh, you could ask me about that. <laughs> you know, it's, amazing. Um, Lynx has actually done an episode on Lux and Ivy and she's oh. the one that introduced me to the cramps. And okay. I definitely, I don't want to skip by anything Lynx. Is there anything you want to yeah. dig in there before we move on? It's just so phenomenal to me uh, because you lived in like the era in New York that I admire so much. The fact that both like 
the cramps and the dead boys are playing their first show together. Yeah. Like that's just mind blowing and like magical and like what, what a scene to be a part of. It was, it just must've been incredible. And there's so many other artists too at the time. Oh yeah. 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 And the the thing is, is that it was really a small scene. I mean, there were the more popular groups, of course, the Ramones who were the main reason that anybody would want to be in New York. I mean, they were, they were just, um, you know, you don't want to call them the darlings. They were just, they didn't, they didn't try to be uh, special. They didn't try to uh, act like they were better than anybody else. They were just fantastic friends. And with the Cramps, uh, we played many dates with them, many opening uh, shows for them. And I uh, was dear friends with, uh, with them. And they were uh, just excellent human beings. And that was the whole representation of New York for me. It wasn't what became New Wave. Uh, and it really wasn't what the Cramps became after I left. I mean, they got their whole deal uh immediately afterward i mean i was shocked you know when i was you know like i saw a picture of them and i thought oh what the hell's going on here you know it's very weird but but they're but they built that whole fantasy into what became them and i admired them for that and that's uh that's a really good thing it was good for me to not be in the group after that because it, I, I wouldn't have, there's no way that I would have fit in. It's, it, there's just no way I'm not theatrical. You know, um, I, I don't primarily like to, uh, wear scanty clothing, and get on stage, you know, I, it's, that's just not my bag. So, uh, so it was good when, when that all happened and, uh, and everybody stayed involved in music, you know, um, they got very involved with building this entire fan base and with, uh, a revolving uh, door of uh, drummers and additional guitar players, some that stayed longer, some that didn't. I've seen the family tree and it's quite long. And, uh, you know, that, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's something else. I, uh, I never saw the cramps ever. Of course, I didn't see them when I was in the group. And afterward, I didn't see them until Ivy's 50th birthday. And they played at, played in New York on, um, at the Warsaw and I got a message through someone saying, oh, they're inviting you uh, and Billy to come in to the show. And, uh, and we did. And we saw each other for the first time in a very long time, very long time. And, uh, and it was good. And, yeah. uh, and, and then I never saw uh, Lux again because, uh, because he passed away subsequently. That's amazing that you got to see them one last time, especially. I think so, too. That was meant to be, for sure. That was meant to be, for sure. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game anyone can play. Guess what, Shanti? What? This week, I hit level 300. Woohoo! I was really loving all of the fun Halloween-related graphics and events, and I just kept going and going. They really always keep it fresh with these new engaging material. Well, congratulations. I'm still a little bit ahead of you. I'm on level 365, and I also noticed those really cute Halloween graphics. Yeah, they were fun. I took your great tip from last time, and I made sure to keep switching out all of my collectible characters to get past some of those really challenging levels. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what keeps changing as we get into November and to Christmas and see what. Oh, yeah, you know, there'll be good stuff. No Wi Fi? No problem. I was off the grid visiting my mom this past weekend, but I was still able to get in my daily game time because the internet is not required to play. You can still have fun anytime, anywhere. 
Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Boucher, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. Uh, speaking of Billy, how did you meet Billy? Tell us all about that. Was it love at first sight? Like. What? Well, <laughs> I try to think about that because I, you know, you pose that question in, on uh, the email, and um, you know, Billy loved to tell the story that uh, that that's not how it happened, and uh, you know, I was like, really, oh, really, <laughs> because uh, I met him. I know the date, uh, the date that that um, a, a big record fair was going on in New York. It was um, uh, what was it called, the Rock Ages uh, record. Fair. And uh, people were bringing records from their home and from their collections and, and selling. And I went with a friend, October 3rd, 1977. And um, uh, I was looking for a particular record and uh, in going around table to table looking for it. Uh, Billy was one of the people and, uh, and he saw uh, he recognized me from uh, he had seen the crabs before. And he had also um, uh, been a reader of a fan scene that I did, which was the Flamin' Groovies monthly. And he had picked that up at a record store and he goes, Oh, you're the Flamin' Groovies girl. <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, you know, and he's, uh, you know, I, he, I asked him about the record and he said, uh, Oh, no, I, I have that record at, at home though, you know, and I thought, well, a lot of good that's going to do me. <laughs> you know? so, uh, so he did invite me to come and visit him. And I went with a, a friend, a, a younger friend, who's still a very, very close friend, a guy uh, who said, like, I'm going with you, you know, and, uh, and he did. And we went and, um, you know, this guy's got a lot of records. He's really nice and all this stuff. And it did happen pretty quickly after that. He says that we had met at a midnight movie some months earlier. I was there with Brian Gregory. Oh, it was some horror movie. And he said that uh, he sat down with his friend behind us and, and then realized that we were sitting in front of him and uh, tapped Brian on the shoulder and said, oh, hey, you know, I saw your band. And, and, and Brian went to introduce me. 
and uh, I was reading a book and, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of barely noticed him. And, and Billy said, he thought, what kind of a girl is this reading a book at a movies? You know, it's crazy. But, but uh, you know, we learned to live with that. I did I do a lot of reading and books became, you know, really part of my uh, so-called career at uh, one point in time. And it's always been important. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't love at first sight, but it was a very 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 uh, serious and, and loving lifetime that I spent with him. Thirty eight yeah. years. Yeah. That's just that's so special. And you guys not only have this personal relationship, but a working one. You've done so much together. Yeah. What came first? Was it the zine? Yes. What had happened was, I, as I said, I was doing a fanzine that was focused on the Flame and Groovies because I was a huge fan. And it was called the Flame and Groovies Monthly. And then when I met Billy, uh, he was saying, well, you're doing a fanzine. I, I got to do a fanzine. I said, yeah, yeah. What do you want to do it on? And he said, well, I, you know, I love the Raiders, Paul Revere and the Raiders. And there, that's where this title came from, Kicks, because kicks keep getting harder to find, just keep getting harder to find. It's a Raiders song. So, you know, it went almost immediately from that idea of being just a Raiders magazine to being an all-encompassing kind of thing. He said, I'll write about the Raiders. You write about the Groovies. We'll get our friends to write about what they want to write about. We'll do record reviews and all this stuff. And in uh, spring of 79, we came out with Kicks number one, never intending for there being, a, for ever, ever having a Kicks number two. But as, as it were, we did well with that. Not, not that it was selling like gigantic quantities or anything, but by well with that, I meant that we, meant con- we made connections with other like-minded people all around the world. And it was those those kicks people, those initial people that I'm still closest friends with, you know, so uh, those friendships that were made in the seventies really lasted. And then that says something for our music, for rock and roll, that friendships built on rock and roll are lasting friendships. It's not something that just is a teenage fancy and you'll get over it. You know, we all love this stuff. We noticed that on the Norton Records site that they're all sold out. Will any reissues well, be coming available? Uh, we did do a, we didn't do it. Someone else did, did a uh, reprinting of Kicks Number 1 when Hurricane Sandy hit. Because I, I don't know if you know about that, but we were we were really destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. We lost a quarter of a million records in Red Hook, uh, had, to, had to completely evacuate uh, and move away from uh, our warehouse there. And during that time, like we had a lot of people, a lot of a lot of well-wishers and people who thought up like genius ideas of what to do to make sure that the, that the label didn't go under, you know, because we went underwater, but, you know, we, we managed to build up after that, but they reprinted number one. I'm actually working on a new issue 28 years after, <laughs> after the last issue, uh, you know, after the, the, the book came out, I was like, you know, I had been floundering about the idea about what's going to happen after that. You know, it's like, it was, I was almost afraid during this period of four years of putting the, the book together and getting it published and what was going to happen. And about a year ago, I mentioned doing a new issue of Kicks to uh, Mark Miller, who is the guy that I do the Crash of the Party radio show with and started the Waterloo Underground uh, show with, which is all kinks related, but Crash of the Party is all doo-wop and that's really my main musical interest at. 
uh, at this point in time and, and has been for quite a long time. So I mentioned that to him. He goes, yeah, we got to do it. That, you know, like, uh, all right. And, and I asked him if he would co-edit with me and he said, yes. So we're going to do a new issue and it's really pretty well on the way, at least with the main story ideas and so on. There's still a lot of work to be done. But, you know, never say never. People didn't, didn't think that there was going to be anything after Kicks Number 7. But as I said, it's uh, 28 years later and uh, there's a new issue underway. And I hope that it delivers the same kind of um, humor and also information that, that hasn't never been divulged and interviews with some of these people who made records that haven't been found before. That was always the deal with Kicks is trying to tell untold stories and be enthusiastic about it and, and behave the way that we felt that these people were as important as the big stars out there who actually made records on major labels. You know, we wanted to shine a light on the records that we really cared about. And that continues to be the case for a new volume of Kicks. And whether there will be anything after Kicks number eight, it's the same never say never that it was after kicks number one and two and three and four. <laughs> you I'm know. glad that you explained that because maybe some of our listeners haven't really read many zines or any at all. And so it's good to know that this is what they could have expected from if they would have picked one up. Yeah, exactly. You know, and the so what I, you were doing. Yeah, and the and the print format uh is just so special to me. I, I always think of printed word, uh even without images to look at that the printed word is such magic you know it's uh you know, music you hear with your ears and you can you cobble up the emotion and the feeling and the storyline in your mind and it's different for just about everybody you know it's uh it's a way of interpreting and watching movies and tv it's a it's a, it's a little bit more designed into you understanding the way someone else wants to portray it but a but a book the whole miracle of like letters on a page, on paper, you know, not on a screen, but on paper and uh, something that you could touch and cover and select and flip the pages and you're in control of completely that can cause you to emote in any kind of way. It can make you angry, happy, sad, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> call, oh, yeah. call to action, you know, um, and it, it's, it's portable. It's something that you can, well, maybe not with the, the new mind over matter book because it's five pounds it's quite big. <laughs> you need a backpack or a mule to carry that thing around but anyway that's uh that's the story with that literature is definitely I... one of the most magical things yeah you know it's one of the few outlets that you use your imagination with right it's not like someone else completely painting the picture you have exactly. to fill it in as well it's, right you're a you're participant right. you are you are and uh and and i collect i have a pretty huge collection of of paperbacks that was really my my real passion in collecting i felt that this was uh this was literature for everyone you know it was inexpensive it was uh, it was disposable unfortunately so a lot of the stuff is rare to find but the whole idea of, of portable hip pocket paperbacks was was really where it was at for me. And I started writing about them in kicks. You know, Billy uh, I said, okay, yeah, you write about paperbacks. He was really not a, a book fiend as in, in any kind of a way that, that I was, but he was very tolerant and supportive of it. And it was out of that story about paperbacks, about juvenile delinquent paperbacks particularly, that led to me doing another magazine called Bad Seed. And from Bad Seed came what evolved into being Kicks Books. Kicks Books may have the word kicks in it. And of course, like all of that 
uh, writing and and joy that Kix was about. When Kix books came about, it was more out of Bad Seed, which was strictly about paperbacks, juvenile delinquent paperbacks, and that's where uh, it came from. I originally was going to call it Kickstand to to be able to borrow from the Kix magazine name and also from Nightstand Books, which was. Uh, edited at one point by one of my favorite writers, Harlan Ellison. So that's where that came from 10 years ago. So there's a lot of things that have happened in the interim, a lot of written and musical things. But, you know, Norton Records became the big thing in 1986. And the, the label um, is what actually caused the magazine to take a 28-year hiatus because people wanted to hear what, the record sounded like, you know, that we were writing about, if we wrote about Hazel Adkins, you know, what did he sound like? And, and so we hunted down Hazel and brought him to New York and issued a record again with only one intention, <laughs> just compile a record so that people can understand what he sounds like, never intending for there to be a, a second Norton album. And we named the label after Ed Norton, Ed Norton. of the Honeymooners because they yeah. were in Brooklyn and, you know, it was right. a, Two, two cool couples, you know. <laughs> so at, at any rate, that was, uh, that's where it came from. And, and that really took over uh, from Hazel Adkins to Escarita, you know, to uh, Rock and R's, to Link Ray, several volumes of Link Ray. And, um, and now it's well over 200 uh, albums and CDs and uh, 45s later. And here we are with the new issue of Kicks Underway. And Billy's Masterwork, which was Mind Over Matter, out in as posh and fabulous a manner that I could possibly make for him. Because I, I really believe that even with all the stuff that he did, all the great writing, research, uh, he was a great friend, such a, a great band member, a supporter of so many different people. He's a really unbelievable individual. Even with that, I, I honestly believe that this was you know, uh, and I don't use the word casually. I think it was his, his, it was his masterpiece. Uh, he worked so long on something that he really, really believed in. And uh, of course, the love of collecting records and trying to divulge these secrets behind uh, names that he didn't know. At one point, he was saying that all of the people on the Fortune label had such intriguing names, uh, Nathaniel and Andre and Nolan Strong and all of these names that they, 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 they had like an things. air of yeah. uh, majesty to them, you know. And, um, and we ended up knowing many of them, of course, not Nolan, because he was long gone, but Andre Williams, Nathaniel Mayer, uh, so many of them that ended up coming into our life and actually recording for us on Norton. So that was so incredible for him. And then, you know, just he, he worked on it until his last day on this planet. He truly did. He had a, 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 a very serious illness. And, you know, we could be, he, he really, nobody in the world could have been working on a book as long as he did. There's, there's no doubt about that. And everybody knows that, but he did. And he wanted that book out and he wanted it published by Kicks Books. And, uh, and at one point I was telling him, I said like, you know, Billy, you know, maybe it would be better to go to another publisher with it. Someone who did hardcover books. Cause I had never done one. And uh, he said, no, this is going to be a Kicks book as though he as though he already knew that something was, was that there was a possibility of not surviving uh, to uh, the point where the book could actually make an appearance. So it, I took it upon myself to make sure that it became uh, fabulous. And his co-author, Michael Hurt, 
a brilliant guy, great historian, um, very heartfelt fellow. He really, really uh, filled in a lot of stuff and worked with a lot of things after Billy's passing and, of course, during it, too. And we had a great designer, woman designer, Elizabeth Van Italy, who was very patient with putting together uh, a book that was almost 600 pages. And, you know, I think she was delighted to be able to work on a book that, you know, I told her it's going to be full color. <laughs> She's like, full color? You know, it's like, that's that's amazing. You know, we do have that many full color pictures as if we got record labels. And that's the main thing that Billy, you know, more important than a person's face, really. I mean, you know, I, I'm just kidding. But more important than that was this, uh, the mystery and the mystique of a, of a Fortune Records label. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they, they kept this very, very old world look to their labels that really belonged on something like Vocalion or some kind of a blues label, Fortune Records. And, uh, and the detail that was on the records often was the only information that he had to go by to try to track down, you know, who wrote it, uh, where was it recorded, what was the deal, and so on. And fortunately, sorry, bad choice of words. <laughs> luckily, <laughs> luckily, we did get to go um, to the Fortune building when it was already deserted and abandoned. But we did get to go there before they tore it down. And just to be, you know, in the... In the the magic of the building, because that was also another thing that I still believe in and that we totally felt was going to the location where something happens, even though it's decades later or a hundred years later, you know, oh, people yeah. go to some famous castle or whatever. They, they, we felt the same way about these places where records were recorded or oh, where somebody lived. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> we got to record once at Sun Studio and it was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is, that is magical. What do you mean you got to record there? Do you have a band? Well, no, we did a podcast episode. We just happened to go for a tour and we met the guys that worked there and we Uh, told them about our podcast and they were like, why don't you come back tonight and we'll record. And it was just wow like sitting sitting right there where like elvis recorded and yeah exactly and like all these people is oh yeah you feel the energy yeah yeah you you do i i believe that i believe that it uh it retains itself because it's music and music is something that is from the spheres (laughs) and it's a it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing it's an amazing thing it's not a pastime and it's not entertainment per se, it's something much deeper and and much more incredible, something that makes our hearts beat. We're going to take a quick pause in our show to tell you about Usual Wines. Usual Wines are wines for the modern drinker, aka me, and maybe you too. Each bottle is 6.3 ounces, which is a heavy pour or about a glass and a half of wine. So no more pouring wine down the sink when you don't want to finish the bottle. You know what else I've done? Don't tell anyone. I've poured wine from my glass back into the bottle when I couldn't finish it. But not anymore. Because of the single-serve format and bottle design, Usual is always fresh, no more flat, bubbly, or stale rosé. Usual has a red blend, a rosé, and a sparkling white wine called Brut. The wines are low-carb and have zero grams of sugar. My favorite was the white, which was surprising because I'm usually a red drinker. I could taste the elderflower, and it really smelled lovely, like bergamot. It's refreshing and not too sweet, not too sour or too crisp, and there's a really good balance. I was thinking maybe the lemon would make it too citrusy, but I think it really evens it out and actually gives it a really smooth taste. I would definitely order these again, and I hope you will too. 
Usual wines are made from world-class AVAs, American Multicultural Area in California, like Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara, and are made with minimal intervention, zero sugar, and zero additives. We have a special holiday product coming early November, Usual Reserve. It's an ultra-premium, limited-edition Mount Vider Cabernet Sauvignon, introducing Usual Reserve. This is our most special wine yet, just in time for the holidays. Hailing from one of the most celebrated plots of land in all of Napa, this Cabernet Sauvignon is concentrated and rich with just enough grip. Gift it to someone special or keep it all for yourself. The holidays, as usual. Go check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MUSES for $8 off your first order and try your first glass on us. That's www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MUSES, M-U-S-E-S, for $8 off your first order. Enjoy! I love the natural progression of your guys' career from doing these zines for fun and then starting Norton Records and then starting Kicks books. And you've got a bunch of great books on Kicks and this new one, Mind Over Matter, all about Fortune Records is just incredible. I had so much fun reading it. I expected to learn about Fortune Records, but I came out with so much more, like learning about Jack and Devorah, their journey with the label, learning about all these different artists, spanning so many different genres. Yeah. Uh, it was so much fun reading and then looking them up and listening to the music that they were talking about and discovering all these new songs right. that are in my rotation now. And I learned a lot about the era as well. And like you said, to top it off, there's just countless photos of memorabilia and the color photos and everything. It enriched it so much. And when I was reading it, it was honestly, it was like an encyclopedia of that whole scene. It's just, it's incredible the amount of detail that he found out and put in there. And it's all fun and interesting to read. It's not like, oh, it's like a heavy, big book. Like you look at it and you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to dive into this. And you just flying through it because it's so fascinating like everything about it was just how long like what what began your fascination with fortune and when did that spark where he decided like I want to I want to bring their story to light well I was discussing with this with Mike a couple of weeks ago and he seems to nail it down to one point uh, uh which was probably a dozen years ago Uh, maybe longer. He said that we were all hanging out. He was visiting us and we were all hanging out and uh, talking about fortune, this and that. And he said that I had said to them, you guys should just do the book. You know, why don't you just write a book? You know, you know so much about it. You're so obsessed with it. And he said that that was where the, uh, where the idea came from. I remember, and I actually found a carbon of it because, uh, you know, I I was a I'm kind of a uh, collector maniac in every regard and kind of a record keeper. A lot of that was destroyed in, in Sandy. But, uh, but I found a, a carbon of a letter that I had written to Devorah almost 30 years ago, uh, asking her for an autographed picture uh, because I thought it was incredible that um, she, as a woman, had created a record label like this and and everyone knows that uh you know we you call it Jack and Devora it's Devora and Jack nice you know it's uh she's really the one she was a songwriter uh she was very 
maternal with many of the acts that came through there, many of them hard up for possibly money or food or just a, a little advice. Uh, she was really, uh, uh, from what I understand, I never knew her apart from speaking with her on the phone, uh, but she seemed like an incredible character. And uh, I, I really wanted to get that autographed picture. And I didn't even think of it. You know, I didn't think about like, well, I'm asking about this, you know, about this woman that we would end up doing a, a book about her label, her her label, Jack's label, but it was her label, and it, and it's an amazing thing how how like a thought that happens years before uh, can actually culminate into being you know possibly at least at this point the last word in Fortune Records, you know hopefully uh, and I know this already there's people coming out of the woodwork saying oh you know I was at Fortune Records this one guy called up uh, asking like two days after he ordered it he's like. I need a tracking number. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you know, I've gotten the book from the printer yet, but as soon as we have a, a tracking number, we'll send it to you. And, and he sounded older. And I said, uh, you know, did, were you a Fortune fan back in the day? And he said, oh, yes, you know, 1953, I was buying records in Lansing, Michigan, and so on. And he said that he had been in the studio as a onlooker when Nolan Strong recorded Adios, My Desert Rose. And how did that happen? He said, I went to school with Nolan's brother. And he said one day, let's go, go down to Fortune. And they happened to be recording. So, you know, uh, on that note, and, and I'm sure anybody who ever publishes a book, you know, at, there's going to be people who come up later and you go, dang, I wish I had that story for the book. We could have added that. But there's a lot of that. And uh, many, many people who are Fortune fans, uh, Fortune collectors, because it's really a, a collector paradise that label have come up and said oh well you know uh, uh here's this tidbit and that tidbit it's never detail about the records to date any improvement on on the discographical data that's in the book but uh but memories about uh seeing an artist or of uh, some hilarity that happened and something amusing or heartfelt or heartbreaking that happened this is what a a, a book does you know it brings people around it and makes them remember and makes makes them think and makes them reconsider that hey look there's this label i had five records from it but holy cow you know they had all these records they had hillbilly acts they had gypsy acts you know they, gospel this is, they had like everything instrumental yeah i mean they had everything so uh that was um you know that's the pleasure in being able to put out a book and then have people respond to it you know even when it's like oh you know i wish we would have had you but how would we how would we ever have found somebody who was just a, a another person who bought records and happened to go by the store it's amazing the amount that you guys did get to put in there and there's so much material there. So yeah. it's certainly not lacking in any way, yeah. even without them. And that's cool that people are now going to discover the book and remember their memories and hopefully kind of share them and put them out in the world as well. well that's yeah. it. You have the people like him who was there and has his own experience with it and then he yeah. gets to relive it yeah. and then people like us who could only wish that we would have been able to experience it but we can't and that's why we get so much true joy out of reading we're huge into reading as well mm -hmm. we get to transport ourselves back into this time mm -hmm. and then we get to speak to people like you who are just kind of making it all happen we live for these kinds of stories and I'm just have to say I'm having so much fun listening to you speak oh. and... well, well one thing about the that just came to mind is that 
you know, Fortune was an, was an underdog, you know, Motown was the label came along a little bit later and ended up being, you know, the well-known label where they were, they, they were not. And to, to their credit, to Fortune's credit, there's, there's not a loser in the batch. I mean, it's remarkable that, that every record offers so much and in a different perspective and was recorded under the most primitive conditions, often with one microphone in a room that um, that's often described as like a garage or a dungeon, I even heard. <laughs> you know, that uh, it was very primitive. It wasn't like a professional recording studio or even like Sun. You know, Sun was, uh, you know, it was a small studio, but still the equipment was top-notch. There was great microphones. Sam Phillips was a genius in, with that regard and tied in with radio stations and the tile floor. It was refracted the sound a certain way. Not Fortune. It was just, it was the incredible talent and really the magic of what was in that back room of a little record store uh, that, that created all of these amazing, amazing records. It was important, and Mike was excellent at this too, in, in Billy's wish to, to draw a portrait of the label within the city of Detroit. And that's why we have the end papers are, uh, you know, two different eras of the street maps of Detroit, because Detroit went through, you know, being automotive capital of the world, possibly at one point in time, uh, the Motor City to going through really, really rough times. And, and still today is, uh, is a far way from, from getting back to where it ever was. And will it ever? We don't know. I knew one detail that I, that as a publisher, I wanted very badly because all of my books have been printed in the United States. And I felt really strongly about that uh, because, uh, you know, as a, as a publishing company, Kicks Books is, is in the States. And I like to be able to have the control over being able to see the printing and everything had been done here in New York State. So I got to see stuff coming off the press and approve it and so on. That was really important. But with this book, I wanted it printed in Detroit. And everybody I talked to, and I, I have friends in the uh, publishing industry who said, you can't print a 560-page hardcover, full-color book in the United States and uh, and have that fly. It's going to be impossible for you, way too expensive. You can print for a lot less overseas. And I said, I, I, you know, we can't do that. We have to give the work to Michigan. We have to give the work to Detroit. And, uh, and that's a real matter of, uh, of, of pride for me that I think people don't realize, you know, that it was printed in, in Detroit, USA. It's important to me. And as a person who spent a lot of time myself in Cleveland, which is very nearby Detroit, and I used to go to rock and roll shows in Detroit a lot, uh, that that whole Midwest kind of instinctive mentality of uh, survival uh, is something that, uh, that I hope comes through in the book. That when you see it, people say like, what's Fortune Records? And I've had that happen. What's Fortune Records? It's like, open the book, you know, and, and they'll look at it and they'll go, what is this? Why have I never heard of this record label? And I, and I think to myself, you know, first time that they hear a Fortune record, they're going to be mind blown. And it's going to it's going to be exciting for them in this world where there's everybody knows everything from the internet. Oh yeah, I know, you know, I, I know how to do this and I know about that. And, and it is great. I mean, the internet is great for that information, but the information that you're going to find in mind over matter 
is not information that has been available elsewhere. Some things might be, of course, you know, with more well-known things, but it's such a eye-opener, and I know it is for many collectors and, of course, people who don't know anything about the label. Hopefully, it'll get them uh, involved with it, and I hope that it inspires other music lovers and record collectors to look at um, a where their interest is focused and can they start telling those secrets about uh, or mysteries, divulging the mysteries of, of uh, records that came out of their city or uh, their community. And maybe those people are still around. You could go interview them. You better do it soon, you know, to get the, the, the earliest history that you possibly can. And don't trust history that is available necessarily on the internet or in some other book that was written years before, you know, read it, consider it, and then do your own research. And that's the joy of it. The the greatest joy is not having any information uh, and starting on that hunt. And to this day, there's still several hunts for individuals who made records under fake names or wrote paperbacks under pseudonyms uh, and trying to figure out who is this person and what was this tiny little company that published these four books and went under or uh, made one record and then they vanished. And that's the joy of it. That's really the joy of it is the, uh, is the story behind an artist and a record label. And the record label thing is, is, is near and dear to me and was very near and dear to Billy. Also to Mike and Lenny Kay, who wrote the brilliant forward to the book, uh, is that, that the label is the, is the vehicle that this music is served up. And uh, a talented person could go into a record label or uh, go in with a producer and that producer could tell them what to do. You know, sing this way, you know, uh, uh, do this, do that, change the words, whatever, whatever. And I'll get you people to back you up. (laughs) And it's not the, it's not the immediate dream of somebody walking in off the street uh, with a gang of friends and recording. And the fact that 99% of those records were recorded in one situation, in that one place that was never really improved. So uh, for decades, uh, that sound, just like it's, it's, at Sun, it's a recognizable sound. You know what a Sun record sounds like. You know what a chess record sounds like. You also absolutely know what a Fortune record sounds like. There is a, It's so distinctive that even in playing doo-wop records, which, which I do all the time, you know, uh, you, you hear different records. You may not be able to identify the studio. Sometimes you can, but with Fortune, it's like from the very first note, it's like, that's a Fortune record. And it's not that it's any, um, any weirder. It's that there is an absolute, almost uh, supernatural thing that comes off of the grooves of that record and just blows your mind. Yeah, that's exactly what happened when I read the book. I didn't know anything about Fortune Records. I went in just blind and it was just like like such a discovery. And it is just so great, not only discovering all this amazing new music, but learning the story behind it. And each one of those people who recorded there have their own story. And yeah. you kind of get into that as well. And they're all fascinating. And I learned so much about Detroit in that era as well through the book. And it's just so well-rounded and it really, like, I felt like I was there, like it put me there. And 
uh, it's just, it's such a magical experience. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you do and who you are. You're so inspiring. You do so much. You're creative. You're <laughs> well, I don't know You're a historian. That. You yes. are. M- what else? Keep going. Oh, like, yeah, and we're going to use this for right. our intro. I'm, just, oh. I'm so energized by this conversation that I'm going to have to go run or jog out some energy <laughs> or something like if this wasn't my podcast i would Wear be very excited to listen to this okay. i live in the country oh lucky girl well we've been speaking for about an hour now we could surely talk to you for hours more but we won't yeah. keep you okay. too much longer links is there anything else that you feel like we haven't missed out on or miriam is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you would like to talk about before we start wrapping it up and saying our goodbyes not really it's um you know, I'm still I'm working really hard at a, a couple of record projects. I can't uh, announce them at this point in time. Uh, and also another book project uh, that I can tell you that it, it does involve uh, photographs from the 50s and 60s that have been unseen before uh, that involve uh, teenage gangs. Uh, I'm working on that. So that kind of comes out of the bad seed thing also. You know, working on uh, on the new Kicks magazine, Kicks number eight, focusing pretty much on uh on exactly what the old issues did uh radio unknown rock and roll stories you know some mysteries in there uh and uh and also the humor and uh, and filling in a lot of things that have happened in the past 28 years new information that has come up from some of the people who became kind of kicks icons from days gone by and Norton icons because we were so interested in finding these people and eventually recording them on Norton. So working on that and then also working on on trying to really kind of inflame people about vocal group music. And I do that with Mark Miller. Uh, We're both uh, vocal group fanatics and try to deliver vocal group music from the original era that is unknown and mix it up with things that are known so that people aren't completely wigged out about what the hell's going on here and get into it. You know, the whole idea is to reel people into what you love because you want other people to be excited too. And when they're excited, things happen. Other records turn up. People start to talk about things. And and this whole isolation deal, like, I don't know how it is uh, for you, but I live in an apartment in Brooklyn. And for the past seven months, I've been virtually alone here, uh, and uh, and and I've gone through panicky periods like everybody else, and very depressed periods. Uh, but the thing that keeps you going, and I've had repeated information from phone callers, from people like collectors who are saying, "What are you listening to?" You know, and uh, I said, "Well, this is what I'm listening to this too." You know, and it's been that whole flow of uh, of music and work that has kept things going, and. Finishing this book uh, over the summer, over the spring and summer, under these conditions was was something else. I I, I stopped to think about it. What if it, the world wasn't the way that it was? Wasn't it? What if I wasn't trapped in here? What would have happened with it? Would it have been better, or would it have been somehow worse? You know. And all I can say is, you have to work with what you have. You know. And when when bad things happen, you just have to throw yourself into it and get into it. And through being into, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't want to get too philosophical, but what I mean is like you th- work, work and creativity and um, making something out of bad times, making 
lemonade out of lemons, as they say, or whatever, or uh, tough things when people say you can't do that, or it's not going to happen. This is a bad time for a book to come out. How are you going to get it distributed? It's the first Kicks book that we never had a big opening party for and uh, reading and launch. It's the first time that that hasn't happened. That'll have to happen next summer, hopefully, when things open up, you know, to be have, at least have a celebration of Detroit music. But I knew that this was the right time. We couldn't let it go any longer, that maybe in, in producing a book at the worst possible moment would be something that would uh, elevate the lives of everybody concerned. And I, I believe that that is what's happening. People are, they're, for one thing, they're a captive audience, right? Yeah. They're like, wow, where's the book? Where's the book? Here's the book. And then you don't hear from them for like two weeks. And then they come back with a, oh boy, <laughs> you know, it's, what happened to you? I was reading <laughs> and listening to records. So that's what it's all about is, is getting people excited and being excited because life is short. And um, sitting around worrying about things uh, is one thing and taking that worry and making it into something beautiful is another. It is a perfect quarantine book to just sit on your couch and, you know, <laughs> yep. with a nice cup of tea and just devour it. And that's certainly what I did. It kept me company for a couple of weeks and oh, thanks, all of those songs did as well. And you mentioned earlier, and I've read a whole bunch of your blog, would you ever consider turning that into a memoir? Actually, yes. Uh, and it was an idea some time ago. And then these other projects, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, always interested in, I think possibly it's a, it's a greedy thing of wanting to get into other people's lives. You know, I, I know my life, but other finding out about other people's lives and, and what they went through. And it's always a surprise, like how, how some record, like with Kim Fowley, like, you know, how did you make all of these records? And, and it's an amazing thing when a person is a real storyteller like him. But yeah, I have thought about that primarily because an odd thing has happened. I used to be a mad correspondent, okay, a pen pal, wrote to people all the time from the beginning of time, and I still kind of do. I still have some friends that like to put a pencil onto paper and we write to each other. But back in those days, before the internet and before you really could get on a phone and like chat for hours or whatever, you wrote letters. And uh, of course, people overseas who were record fans going to see bands and stuff like that would write letters. And a lot of people have given me back the letters that I wrote to them. And it's hilarious. I mean, I've had like great fun times reading those letters because what was I thinking? <laughs> and my sister found, found letters that I had written and, uh, and so on. So those letters, the letters that I wrote are there, but also the letters that people wrote to me. And so, you know, not on the, you know, I, I know that, you know, some of the famous people that I have uh, had a long correspondence with, it's not about the, the fact that they were famous or whatnot, but it's, uh, it fills in history at the time like for instance with the cramps you know like while they were in New York and I was still in Ohio before the group you know I got loads of letters from individually written by Lux and Ivy that were about uh, what was going on in New York? Could they help distribute the new Perubu 45, which they did? And, uh, you know, it was a, an exchange. And you, in, in reading them, you see the development of this idea of this plan and this kind of idea with them, particularly, at least for me, because it was a personal relationship, is that 
they didn't know anything about forming a band either. They didn't know anything about it. You know, Ivy didn't really know how to play. He had never been on stage singing. The idea that, hey, you never played drums, you're the one for us. <laughs> you know, and Brian, like, you know, trying to look cool playing whatever, whatever he was doing, you know, it was like, that's not going to stop us because, you know, there's something that we got to do and we got to do it now. We've got to do it together. So, you know, uh, that's, that's where it really uh, comes from. And uh, so uh, there's letters from them and um, it's a really, really long letter that I read the, again the other day from Lester Banks that just goes on and on and on. Single space, seven pages of, of uh, do it, do it, do it. Like this encouragement kind of a letter. And he was my idol as a, you know, my, the rock writer that I had to, you know, read every word he ever did. And, and he was fantastic. So there's letters from him and lots and lots of letters from other people, uh, Cleveland people, New York people, people around the world, uh, where it was, um, it was a genuine exchange. Nobody was trying to make anybody else seem like they weren't smart. It was funny. It was raunchy sometimes. And, and I agree, you know, I think maybe the time is right. Maybe next year I'll do that, even though it might be a, a slim volume. And I don't really like to talk about, you know, uh, you know, personal stuff that much at all. <laughs> you know, I'll talk about the fun stuff and about the superficial stuff. But, you know, as for the, the unhappy things and the things that, that might cause some grief to myself, particularly, I really care about my own mind, uh, is, uh, is eliminated. But I think that it would make a, uh, it would fill in some details where people might think, whoa, well, these people were like artists who like sat down and wrote a, you know, some kind of a huge plan on how to, you know, dress and play and so on. Yeah. It, it wasn't like that. And uh, the New York scene really wasn't a bunch of intellectuals hanging out. I've, you know, I, it wasn't. It was a bunch of people who didn't feel, at least us imports who came here, couldn't fit in. And, and even in, in uh, Ohio, like everybody who could possibly leave Cleveland pretty much did. You know, uh, because there wasn't a place to grow. Uh, there are uh, many great, great groups that uh, that were spawned and uh, lived and died there. They had a, a real limitation. In New York, you got to hang out all the time with people who felt the same way. They didn't feel comfortable, really, in fitting into the world as it was or other people their own age. And it was comfortable that way, it, despite all of the, you know, crazy stories about this, that, the other thing of what went on. People were very genuine and you sought each other out. And I very quickly knew that I wasn't never going to leave New York. And even now, when a lot of friends are leaving and uh, my brother's up in Canada, and he's encouraging <laughs> me, look, every morning I get a beautiful picture of him, you know, like on the lake with the woods and all this stuff come on over, you know, come here. And I'm like, but I can't leave. And he's like, why not? I don't know why not. You know, so many friends have left and it is really kind of getting to feel spooky and a little desolate, but it was spooky and desolate in 1976. It was bankrupt at that time. Nobody wanted to come to New York. It was a like, New York, no way. They were, you could find an apartment for, you know, uh, 150 bucks for two people, easy, you know. Uh, and you could find a job because nobody wanted to stay here to work, you know. So if it's the same thing, I don't mind. I really don't mind. You know, it's been always through that. in transition. Always, you know, and, and things go through their cycles as they do with Canada and Sudbury or Toronto, Montreal, wherever. 
uh, and in every city, Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, all these different cities. New York, you know, we went through bad stuff, uh, you know, on 9-11. A lot of people left at that time, and um, we didn't know what was going to happen. Well, now it's all it's happening again in a worldwide kind of a way. And yeah. uh, New York suffers in a big way because it's a big city and a lot of people close to each other. And it's it's a little scary, but hopefully, it's home. Yeah, hopefully there'll be a positive transition in the next two weeks and uh oh yes we'll less than two ten. it's nine days what are yes. you kidding i'm counting <laughs> yes let's hope by the time that this is released there's been some good news in the world yeah exactly we can all rejoice i i believe that there will be uh, totally you must believe and you've got to vote right yeah so that's exactly. the, that's the story Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, um, anytime I had a pleasure. It, sorry. <laughs> it was a pleasure. <laughs> it was. You know, it certainly was a pleasure. And we're going to continue to follow you and look for the other things that you're putting out. Yeah, you got to come day. back and chat again. Yeah, we okay. love that. <laughs> sure we have more to talk I'll about. I'll interview you guys next time, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about this Sudbury place. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I don't live there anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, I I think that if we could, um, well, I don't want to say that. I was saying something about congratulating each other, but you know, but you know, Sudbury had a lot of great things about it. It really, really did. It really did. Yeah. It, I, and I, it, it was it was my bedrock, literally. Uh, and I grew up there the first I, almost eleven years of my life, and I I owe it a lot. And I really feel, even though I've been here for, you know, most of my adult life, all of my adult life, for sure, I still feel that Canadianness. and people often say that about me. They say yeah. that you're so Canadian. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm not quite sure what they mean about that, if it's good or bad, but I like to think it's good. I think it's good. I'm proud of where I came from, too. Yes. And I think it makes the traveling experiences that we've had and the move to the big city sweeter because... Yeah we had to make that choice and to make the moves and to take the risk. And yeah. we, we not, there's anything wrong with just growing up there. Yeah. Thanks. But um, <laughs> it was a big move yeah. and uh, I'm certainly proud of where I come from and where I am now. And I'm sure you feel the same, but I this do. was an absolute joy of a conversation and I'm going to be really looking forward to putting it out. Thank you for taking the time to speaking with us. This okay. is all so exciting. Oh, thank you so much. Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com. All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods or see us at R&R Archaeology on Instagram. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery 
following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwein have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.